Join me as we pray. Lord, would you help the, the words that we sing to be true? That we would truly believe and to know how great and mighty and powerful and wonderful you are. That, God, there would be no other gods before you in our own lives. God, that you, we know you are God alone. And Jesus, today remind us through your word that you are the God, the only God that is worthy of our praise, that is worthy of our honor, that is worthy anything that we can give or anything that we can think or, or anything, Lord, that, that you are everything and you are God alone. And that we don't just sing it or say it, but Lord, we believe it and we live it. Help us to do that in your grace. Help us to look to your word this morning and guide us as we seek to know you more. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Surprise. It means many of you are surprised that I'm preaching. I didn't wear a tie. Justin's, Pastor Justin has been up here preaching, doing a wonderful, wonderful job going through the book of Judges. But I'm back. All right, so we're, we're back for a week. I'm excited. I, you know, it has been such a blessing. I know this isn't what now this time is necessarily for. It's been such a blessing over the last month and a few weeks that we've had Justin here with us. And he has really been a blessing not only to this church, but to me. And uh, so I... Uh, I find it a great privilege now to be able to come back and be able to preach again. It's been a little while, and uh, it is a tremendous blessing. And uh, and I think I'd forgotten that, to be honest with you. I think it had become just another job. But the I, the idea and the ability now for me to, that God has given me this opportunity to preach again, I am really looking forward to that. I say that almost as a as a cautionary tale to you because, hey, there's been a month of things that have been going around in my mind that are going to probably spew out, so uh, bear with me. Um, but it is an exciting time. We continue to go through the book of Judges, and in just a moment, uh, we will indeed go back into the book of Judges. We're going to be in Judges chapter 10, uh, Ju- Judges chapter 10, verses 1 through 16, and uh, we'll be there in just a moment, by way of introduction and by way of review, I'll quickly go through what we've been looking at through the book of Judges. If you haven't been with us, or maybe you have been with us, but it's uh, it's been a while now, and maybe you're a little rusty on how things have progressed up to this point in Judges chapter 10. Uh, we can't exhaustively go through all of it. I would always encourage you, you can go back and listen to all of these sermons again if you want to catch up. But... Uh, in a short way to review what's been going on. We saw in the book of Joshua, if you remember going all the way back to when we were in that book, in the book of Joshua we saw that Yahweh, uh, God, gave Israel the promised land of Canaan. And we saw at the end of Joshua they were given the land and the land was theirs, but they had the responsibility of driving out all the people. And so they had this responsibility to drive out all the people. They're given it in Joshua. And even in Joshua, we're given a little bit of a foreshadowing to tell us, you know, this isn't really going to happen, but this is what Israel is called to do. And we start off judges, and it seems like they start off well. They start off in courage, trusting God to bring uh, the continued uh, domination of the land. And they start off with seemingly in courage and well, but very, very, very quickly give in to compromise. 
because of convenience and because of whatever it might be, they decided to walk away from Yahweh and to walk away from him and instead to go towards other gods and to not fully trust him. And as they didn't fully trust him, we then see this carousel of compromise that has been seen again and again and again as we've gone through the book of Judges. This carousel of compromise that is disobedience, that leads to God's discipline, that leads to his deliverance. That there has been this pattern that has been developed as we've seen judge after judge, temporary deliverers, temporary saviors that have come time and time again uh, to that God has used them to give deliverance after the people have disobeyed and we see this constant cycle. They disobey, God brings a foreign power to discipline them, they are into slavery, they are destroyed, they are being beaten down, and then God delivers them through a judge. That's been the cycle, and it continues as we go through this book. One thing that we are we cannot miss is that Yahweh's deliverance, the fact that he has delivered the people through the judges is not for the glory or the praise of any one judge. It's not for the glory or praise of Israel, but it is for the glory and praise of him. That he wants the whole world to know, he wants all of Israel to know that he, Yahweh, is the Lord. He is the one to follow. He is the only God. And that is a theme that continues to come through. Most recently, we've seen the stories of Gideon. We've seen the stories of Gideon and Abimelech. Okay, they show us these two things that we've been looking at as Pastor Justin has led us through these two judges, the stories of their lives and how they've unfolded and what God did in and through Israel during this time. And we see that Israel continues to spiral deeper and deeper into the ways of the culture around them. That Israel and its leaders have spiraled down and down and down to the to the place where they are really just doing the same thing that the Canaanites and the culture around them has been doing. They are spiraling down into the ways of the culture that is surrounding them, which is not what they're called to do. They are called to overtake the culture around them. They are called to be a, a light for Yahweh, but instead they are deeping, dipping deeper and deeper into the culture and the sin and the idolatry that is around them. And finally, through those stories of Gideon and Abimelech, we see that Yahweh gives undeserved grace and also perfect justice all at the same time. That our God, the God of Israel, the one that we are told about from the very beginning pages of our, of our Bible, that God created the heavens and the earth, that same God now is one of, that just pours down undeserved grace and perfect justice. Grace that is given to those who have no deserving part of it, that they are given grace, but God also is a God of perfect and wonderful justice, and that we don't need to figure out a way to avenge ourselves or to find justice in ourselves, but to just give everything over to him as he is a God of undeserved grace and also perfect justice. So that's where we've been, and we kind of boiled it down. There's so much more truth that we've seen throughout the book of Judges, but now we find ourselves in Judges chapter 10. It's after uh, the story of Abimelech, as we've seen just the darkest of dark times for Israel so far. The bloodshed and violence is almost unbearable, and we get to chapter 10, and we see God continues to use Israel and to save Israel, and he continues to work. But now there's this very interesting passage that we're going to look at this morning. Before we even read the passage, by way of illustration, I'd like us to start getting to, just to think about what we're going to look at this morning. 
And uh, it is sports season. I haven't been up to preach since sports have started, really. Uh, so it's time for your sports illustration. If you don't love sports, I'll get to some other things, too. Uh, but uh, bandwagon fans. Uh, these are everybody's least favorite fans. And what a bandwagon fan is very simple. Uh, it's someone that decides that they're going to root for a certain team based on whether they are winning or not. And so basically, year by year, they might even change their team. Uh, and uh, this, for a real true fan, especially a fan of a team like the Buffalo Bills, that you are true no matter what happens, no matter how bad they are, maybe not this year, but we'll see. But as, as a real fan of a team, you get very irritated with the bandwagon fans around you. And a great example of that for me was a few years ago, many of you know, the Chicago Cubs won the World Series, which was a lifetime wait for me. I'd been waiting since I was three years old. I remember watching them in the playoffs at three or four years old and crying when they lost. So my my dream had been fulfilled, and the Cubs had finally won the World Series a few years ago. Uh, and uh, And all of a sudden, like... People all over the place are Cubs fans all of a sudden. It was like, wait a minute, I've been a Cubs fan for, uh, you know, 20-something years, and now they win the World Series, and now all of a sudden you're trying to tell me that you're a Cubs fan. Weren't you a Yankees fan two years ago or, uh, or a whatever fan ten years ago? Who knows? But that type of bandwagon mentality, that people will jump onto the bandwagon depending on what benefits them. Uh, you know, oh, this, this team is losing. That doesn't feel so good anymore. So I'm going to start following this other team. Just had this interesting conversation happen with my youngest son, Noah, as he decided uh, last year, as he watched a few football games with me, that he was going to be a Patriots fan. He, he's changed his mind since, all right? He's, he's been converted. It's okay. You don't need to, he does not need to go into church discipline or anything like that. But it was interesting as I talked to him and I asked him the reason. I said, why are you going to root for the Patriots? You know I'm a Bills fan. Why would you root for the Patriots? And just as innocently and as honestly as ever, he said, because they win. Um, now, I tell that funny story and we talk about sports and we think about, really, you see it in sports. Loyalty is gone. Like many times people will jump from team to team depending on who's doing well, depending on who's winning, and they don't really have loyalty. But it doesn't just stop at sports. Uh, I mean, we just went through a, a situation, and continuing really, of switching to a different provider for our internet at our house. And and what you do is you, you shop everybody and you call around and you make sure you get the right price. And if you don't get the good price and then somebody else offers a better price next year, you just switch over to them and you keep switching around because you want to get the best price. No loyalty to a cable company. I'm not saying they deserve loyalty. I'm just saying there isn't loyalty. Uh, you know, phone might be the same way. Cell phones, you're always changing from one provider to another provider or a different type of phone because it's either cheaper or because it does better things for you. Uh, Insurance, you know, that is even something that you can flip-flop back and forth and, and, and go and get different insurance if it's going to provide for your needs better. And I'm not saying any of these things are wrong. In a more serious way, maybe it's in friendship. We see that loyalty is being neglected even in friendship and that people will make friends with people as long as they're getting something out of the friendship. But as soon as that friendship uh, does not provide them the, the the luxury or the privilege or whatever it might be that they want, they'll just say, all right, well, I'll move on to a new friend. 
Even more concerning, obviously, would even be in the marriage department. A lot of marriages are being broken apart because of this idea of, well, I'm done with you, I'm not getting what I want anymore, so therefore I'm going to move on. This is a very sad uh, commentary on our culture. And we also see it fleshing out even in church, in, in how we respond and how we see church and fellowship with our, with our fellow believers. I'll come to a church or I'll be with believers if it benefits me, if it makes me feel good, if it makes me want to be here. But if I don't really feel it or if it's really not giving me a benefit, I'll move on to a different church or move on to a different group. And I could go on and on and on about all the different examples of what it looks like for loyalty not to really exist much anymore in our culture. It's People are always looking for a better deal or a more comfortable place. That's just how we are as humans, and this is something I believe is a problem. And Israel, what we're going to see today in a very serious, much more serious way than whether you're going to root for the Patriots or the Bills, none of that really matters. In a much more serious way, we see that Israel becomes a bandwagon fan of the Baals, a bandwagon fan of the false gods of the nations around them. And I would say this, they do this whole, this, this thing in their relationship with God and the other gods around them. They decide and they look, and we're going to see this in Judges chapter 10. We've seen it all throughout Judges. We'll continue to see it throughout Judges. That even Yahweh, the God that they claim is their God, they will treat him in the same way that they will treat all the other Baals, all the other gods in the, in the world. And it becomes about, if you will do something for me, then I will come to you. If you can promise me something, then I, you'll be worthy of my praise and worship. It's a very selfish, very non-loyalty type of deal. And I hope before we get to the end of our sermon today, we will see that we must not do the same, and yet so many times we do. We may run to God, we may run to Christ at times when we need Him to do something for us, but we don't just run to Him because we love Him or because we need His grace. And by the end of our time in Judges chapter 10, I hope that's where we'll end up being. And so, with that being said, this is the key thought for our time together this morning. And I want to just jump out right off the the bat, let you know exactly where uh, we are steering in this passage and where we are hoping to end. And this key thought is something that I hope you will hold on to and remember and think about. And that is this very key thought that Yahweh is not a God to be wielded He is a God, he is the God to be worshipped. Again, Yahweh is not a God to be wielded, he is the God to be worshipped. This needs to be our heart and our attitude. You say, why would you use these words? Well, obviously there's some alliteration, but let's think about to wield. To wield something, according to Webster's Dictionary, is to have, hold, and be able to use, as in a weapon, a tool, or even an idea. To wield something is to hold on to it and use it for your benefit. Obviously, if it's a weapon, it's to attack. You wield a sword that you would use. Maybe it's a tool that you would use or maybe even an idea that you could wield wield something. But it's something that you have, you hold, and you use. So really, Yahweh is not a God to be used he is the God to be worshipped. To worship, though, we got to talk about what does that word mean. Sometimes we don't get that. Worship is not just the singing we do on Sunday mornings. That is a part of what worship could be. Uh, Webster defines this, reverent love and devotion, and I think that's part of it. 
But the Bible goes even further, and when we see it, especially in the Old Testament, the word worship, when it's really used in that sense, it's to bow down. It's to go prostrate. It's to be so humiliated that you are down on your face in front of your God, that you are in front and worshiping the one who rules over you. That is what worship is. There is a difference between bowing down to the ground in complete surrender and humility versus wielding, versus using a God, using our God. And so many times I believe we can do that. See, too often I believe, and I put myself in this, that we come to God for what he can do for us. We don't come to God simply because of who he is. I think this is something we can easily fall into, that we will run to God, we will run to Christ, and ask Him because of what He can do for us, not because of who He is. And I hope by the end of what we see here in Judges, and as we think about the rest of Scripture, that we would not have this mentality. A quote that was that kind of impressed on my mind this idea was from a conference went to with the young adults uh, in January. Uh, the cross conference, and David Platt quoted this, and he said this, and I know that this statement you could unpack, and you could probably find reasons why it's not 100% theologically accurate, but he said this, and it stuck with me. He said, we don't come to God to get stuff. We come to God to get God. Now, that's a simple phrase, but how many times do we really believe that? Or do we just run to Christ in our time of need because we want something from him, but not we don't just want him? I believe this is a huge problem in Israel. I believe it's a huge problem in our hearts. So we'll take some time this morning to look at that. So again, the key thought, Yahweh is not a God to be wielded. He is the God to be worshipped. Again, I've been, using, I've been using Yahweh. Justin, Pastor Justin has been doing that. He's been, and I'm going to try to do that when I read too. And I, there's some really good reasons why. One of the main reasons why, just to really quick in Judges, Because there's a whole lot of gods, but there's only one Yahweh. And so as we read that, I'm going to try to do my best. Pastor Justin also sat down with me, gave me a Hebrew lesson on how to read Hebrew. So we're going to do our best this morning. All right, so I'm going to try. I'm going to try, but even if I butcher anything or mispronounce anything, let us really listen to what God has to say. Let us not get distracted by words, but let us see what is happening in Judges chapter 10, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 16, if you would read with me. After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua, son of Dodo, a man of Issachar. And he lived at Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel 23 years, and he died and was buried at Shamir. After him arose Jair, the Gileadite, who judged Israel 22 years. And he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they had 30 cities called Havoth Jair to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried in Camon. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook Yahweh and did not serve him. So the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. 
And the people of Israel cried out to Yahweh, saying, We have sinned against you, because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? The Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you and they cried out to me and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods, therefore I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to Yahweh, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served Yahweh. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. So as we read this and we think about what's happening now in the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, let's start by way of introduction to what's about to happen. We're going to look at the first five verses. And these five verses, there's not much detail. There's not much given to us. But we see this guy named Tola. He comes and we're told that he saves Israel. It seems to be that Tola judges Israel in a time of apparent peace. It seems to be that he would be in a political leader, not necessarily a warrior. There's no people that have come against Israel that they need to be delivered from. We just see now that uh, after Abimelech comes Tola, and he's the son of Pua, Dodo, and a man of Issachar, and we're told that much about him, and he, where he lived, we're told that, and he judged Israel 23 years, and he died and was buried at Shamir. Not much told what was going on here. And honestly, we don't know all the stuff that might have been going on here. What we do know is that God raised him up, and it seems like there was a time of apparent peace. He was probably a political leader, not a warrior. And so we see that God, even though, just remember what Israel just went through, all the blood, all the violence, all the hatred, all of the dissension, all of that that just happened. And now we're told that Tola comes and for 23 years judges Israel. Apparently, there has been some type of peace. And maybe, and we believe that Tola is there not to save them from a foreign oppressor, but to keep them safe from themselves. Then we see the next person come along, the next judge, and that's Jair. Uh, and I'm probably saying his, wrong, his name wrong, but that's okay. Judges Israel in the name of parent, apparent prosperity. And why do we think that? Why do we think that Jair had prosperity? Well, he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they had many or 30 cities called Havoth Jair to this day which is in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried in Kimon. So we see here this next guy, this next judge that God raises up, brings out to judge Israel, is Jair. Uh, and uh, it's time of prosperity. He has sons, he has donkeys, he has cities. But also notice as we look at Jair, following, uh, he's following those before him and looks like a Canaanite king. Gideon, Abimelech, they came before him and they took on wives and they had many kids and they had much stuff. And they decided to develop their wealth and influence and they became like the Canaanite kings around them. So this is not a good thing that it talks about him having 30 donkeys, 30 cities, 30, so 30 sons. Uh, this just means that there's a time of prosperity, no doubt, but it's something that is still not what it should be. Just like the Canaanite kings are amassing people and wealth and cities, so Jair is doing the same. However, even in that, God still maintains his rule, if you will, his judgeship over for 22 years. So we see that all in all, from what it seems like as we read, it's very brief, the times were good for about 45 years. 
And Israel was happy to do as they pleased, and as they did that, they forgot Yahweh. For almost, almost five decades, half a century, we see not much happening from what we're told here in Scripture. So that's a little bit of an introduction, and I think it's important that we see where Israel was coming into these next verses. Uh, in verses 6 through 8, we see our first point this morning, that Israel abandons Yahweh to serve other gods. Israel abandons Yahweh to serve other gods. This is not the first time we've heard this happen, it won't be the last The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth and the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. They forsook the Lord and did not serve him. This shouldn't surprise us. We've seen Israel do this before. They did what was evil. And as they were doing what was evil, according to God's word, they were serving what seems to be seven other groups of gods. Seven other groups, seven other types of gods, the Baals, it's not just one, there's not just one Baal, by the way, it's, it's any lord or god that the Canaanites would, would follow, and we see seven groups of them that are being worshipped, served, by Israel. Now, I heard one person, as they preached on this, say that uh, there's a possibility, if you think of the number seven, you know that that means it's like a number of completion. So maybe this is to show us that the seven groups of gods that they're serving almost points to the fact that they have completely and utterly just forsook God to follow other gods. There was nothing left. They have forsaken Yahweh. We've seen that. They've forsaken Yahweh and are not serving Him alone. Now I want to say this. Obviously they still have a knowledge about Yahweh because in just a few verses they'll reach out to Him and ask Him for help. So it's not that Israel has totally forgot that there's a Yahweh out there. I believe they still believe that Yahweh is there. They believe that Yahweh is real. They believe he is a God. But I don't believe that they believe at this point that he is the only God, the only Yahweh. And so they have forsaken him and they are serving other gods along with him. They may have a knowledge, but he has just become another one of many gods. And so what do we see happen? Well, we see that Yahweh disciplines them through the Philistines and the Ammonites. We see that, and we've seen this, and we'll see it again. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And so we see that God, uh, Yahweh, has dis. He's disciplining his people through the Philistines and the Ammonites. And here's the interesting thing as we think about what's happening here. Remember the gods that were just listed that Israel have been following and have been serving. The gods of, that they've been serving are the gods of these nations. Don't lose that. The very nations whose gods Israel were following were now enslaving them. They're, the gods they served are now enslaving them. Now that's interesting because I believe this is always true. Following any idol always leads to more and more slavery. And I can come up with examples of that after example. A great one is like drugs or, or, or drinking or, or money even. It's like you get some of it and you want more of it. And it's almost like here Israel is seeing, whoa, we've been serving these gods and now we're being oppressed by them, but don't all idols oppress 
And that's what we see happening here in Israel. And so they're following the very gods uh, that now are oppressing them, that now they have, they're under slavery of the Philistines and the Ammonites. For 18 years, they are being disciplined. 18 years, and the question becomes, in just a moment, we're going to see them call out to Yahweh, but why did it take them so long? 18 years to call out. So that's our next point, point two. Israel becomes desperate for deliverance. 9 through 16, pretty much the rest of this passage, we see that Israel becomes desperate. In verse 10, um, well actually first, verse 9, and the Ammonites crossed the Jordan and fought uh, to fight against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim so that the Israel was severely distressed. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. We see Israel here is in a desperate place. The Ammonites, who at this point were just over on the other side of the Jordan, not really bothering the mainland of Israel, if you will. Now all of a sudden they are amassing an army. They are ready to not only oppress the tribes that are outside of the Jordan, but now go in and to attack and to uh, oppress the mainland of Israel. And it seems like that woke Israel up to the point where they come and they say, God, Yahweh, we have sinned against you. We have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And we see them saying that, coming to God. After 18 years, they come in their desperation to ask for help. Israel calls out to Yahweh for deliverance at this point. The Ammonites are ready to invade the mainland of Israel. So Israel calls out to Yahweh for deliverance. Two things they do here. First of all, they confess their sin. We see that it says in a couple places, we have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. Later on in verse 15, it says, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. At face value, we look at this and think, oh good, Israel is finally figuring things out. And maybe this is part of it. But I believe as we look at the context of what Israel is saying at this point and what we're going to see from what happened before and now what's going to happen after, I believe that they're not so much confessing this sin as much as they're just conceding. This is more of a concession than a confession. Like, Lord, there's nothing else we can do. Yahweh, there's nothing else we can do. Yes, we've sinned. We need you now. And so it's a weak confession at best. Uh, If it was a true confession and true repentance, I believe we would see more change as we go through the next few chapters, but we see things just continuing to spiral downward. So we see Israel does confess their sin. They make a concession to God that, yes, we've sinned. Later, in verse 15, it says that they would put away their idols. Verse 15 uh, in this time, and we'll get to what God says in between these verses. But And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. Again, it seems like there's confession. And then it says, And they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. Now again, face value, we look at this and say, Good, Israel has figured it out. We know Israel hasn't figured it out because in just a, in just a few more pages, we'll see them go back to the gods that they are now putting away. And I want to draw your, your thought back, if you were with us a, a few weeks ago, um, as they put away their idols. If you remember, uh, Pastor Justin was preaching about idolatry, and he said, how do we repent? How do we truly repent from idolatry? And he said, we need to identify and destroy the idol. Identify, and then the key word there, destroy the idol. So maybe Israel here has identified the fact that the foreign gods they've been serving aren't doing it for them. 
They're not giving them what they want. And so Israel says, okay, well, you know, we'll put them away. But notice this isn't, they didn't destroy their idols. That was one thing that as, as Pastor Justin and I talked this week about, uh, about this passage. They put it away. It's almost like if you just, they like shoved it under the carpet, right? They just shoved their car, their gods under the carpet, but they would bring them back out in only a few short years, really. And, and so, what we see here is that Israel might be confessing and putting away their idols, but I don't believe this is true repentance. They didn't identify and destroy the idol. They simply put it away. And notice also that the word here says that they served Yahweh. Earlier on in this passage, it says they served the Baals. They're serving Yahweh the same way they serve the Baals. And how do you serve the Baals? How do you serve false gods? Well, you do what they want so that they'll do something good for you. And I believe that when the Bible says here, it doesn't say that they worshipped Yahweh, it says they served Yahweh. I think it's probably pointing to the fact that they're serving Yahweh in the exact same fact that they were serving the gods of the nations, the Baals that were around them. Because once again, they're becoming a bandwagon fan. <laughs> they're, they're saying, okay, the idols haven't done it for us, so now we're going to run to God. We'll serve him and we'll put away those other idols that aren't working so that Yahweh can save us. Really, I think what we see here is Israel, Israel is trying to make a deal for deliverance. And I, I think we see that even in this last verse, uh, or in verse 15. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. Now, this seems very interesting. Do to us whatever seems good to you. If it stopped right there, you could say, Oh, they're finally getting that God is sovereign, right? And that, that but then they go on. They don't just say, God, do what you're going to do because you're sovereign and we trust you. No, it says, do whatever seems good to us, but please deliver us this day. In other words, God, do whatever you want to do, but deliver us. Realize how that doesn't really make sense. They're trying to make a deal. Now, maybe if, if you're a parent, you've had this happen. You know, yeah, you're... My kid's here somewhere, but okay, so we have a kid, and they, they come to you, and they do something wrong, and you say, all right, well, we're going to go ahead, and we're going to punish you this way. So let's say, we're going to ground you for a week, and there's something important happening in that kid's life that week. So what they do, they, they get on their knees and say, mom, dad, no, anything else, anything else, you can spank me, you can ground me next week, you can take away all my, all, all, all my food, you can do whatever you want to do, but don't ground me for this just don't do this. Do whatever you want, but just don't ground me for this week. I think that's what Israel's doing. I think they're trying to make a deal with God by saying, God, we'll do whatever it takes, but just deliver us. Do whatever you want with us, but deliver us. They are looking for what he can do and not for who he is. And so we see this happening. So Israel has called, has called out for them for deliverance as they seemingly confess. They put away their idols, but they don't fully repent. The <clears throat> verses in between here show us what God knows about the heart of Israel. This is a very interesting passage. Yahweh reminds them in this passage of verses 9 through 16a, Yahweh reminds them of their unfaithfulness and reveals the futility of their idolatry. Yahweh reminds them of their unfaithfulness and reveals the futility of their idolatry. Here's a couple of things he says to them. First of all, he says, this is what I've done. Don't you remember what I've done? Don't you remember who I am? In verse 11, he said, did I not save you from the Egyptians and the Amorites, from the Ammonites and the Philistines, the Sidonians also, and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried out to me and I saved you out of their hand? 
Yet you have forsaken me and have served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. The first thing that God says is, don't you remember what I've done? Don't you remember who I am? And here is something we can't miss. God mentions all of these different gods and different nations. God is saying, look, I've already defeated all these gods that you are now worshiping. Not only is this disobedient, but this is just plain, forgive my language, stupid. That God has delivered them time and time again from all these false gods. And he said, I am God above all gods. I am Yahweh. There is none like me. And God has done that. And yet Israel is so quick to run to the gods who can't give them anything or have any power over Yahweh himself. And Yahweh reminds them and says, what have I done? Who I am? These gods that you serve, I've already had victory and I will have victory again. Israel is at a point where they just don't get it. So many times I'm afraid we can get there, but we'll get to that in a moment. So God says that first, and then he says, uh, then another thing he says in here is basically, why don't you run to your other gods for help? This is sarcasm. It is what it is. God looks at Israel, and I don't know if he's, uh, maybe through a prophet or how he's communicating at this point, but we know that God is communicating to Israel, and he says, all right, you're in trouble, go to your other gods. Basically what he's saying is, what? If you want to serve the other gods, if you want to go that direction, then just keep going that direction. Why are you coming to me? Keep serving them. Because obviously that's working so well. That's basically what God is saying to Israel. Go to your other gods. Why do you come to me? I think, I believe that God knows exactly the heart of Israel. And the heart of Israel is, we will go to whatever God will benefit us most. And I think God is getting, Yahweh himself is getting to that as he says, why don't you serve the other gods? I'm done and that's the other thing he says, I will save you no more. There is, And this is a hard thing to look at because it seems so harsh. But think about all that God has already done to just continually show mercy and love and grace to Israel. And now he's at a point where he says, nope, you're not just going to come to me. I'm not just your genie in a bottle. I'm not just in a box that you can take me out when it's time for deliverance. No. Now, I think the point of this is not that he is not going to save them, because he does. I think the point of this is to show Israel that there is absolutely nothing they can do to ever deserve God's salvation. That there is nothing that Israel can do or say that is going to make God work for them, because that's not who Yahweh is. Yahweh doesn't work for them. He doesn't serve them. They need to worship him. And I think the point here is there is nothing that Israel is able to do. Again, we've seen this in the story of Gideon. We've seen this all through Judges. God reminds his people, you can't do anything, nothing, not a little tiny bit without, my, without me, without my strength, without my grace. And he's showing that even now as he says, I will save you no more. In other words, there's nothing you can do. You may have come to ask me. You may have even confessed your sin. You may have even put away your gods, but None of that is going to draw me to save you. But then we get to our last point. Even after God says all these things, and it seems like there is absolutely no hope for Israel, and from an outside looking in, you would say what they've done and how they've walked away from God, they deserve to be destroyed, they deserve to be left behind. But then we see this one statement here at the beginning of verse 16 that is just very, very interesting. At the end of 16, I'm sorry, it says this, And he, the Lord, Yahweh, became impatient over the misery of Israel. 
Now, there's a couple ways this, this could be translated. Some people believe it's that God is saying he's impatient with Israel itself, and that's probably true. But I believe what this is setting up is what's coming behind it, which is God will deliver Israel. God will rise up Jephthah, and he will rise him up to be a judge to free Israel from the Ammonites. And so I believe that this statement, God is making it, this is very clear, that the reason he's going to deliver Israel is not because of what they've done or what they've asked or who they are, that God is going to deliver Israel because he is impatient over their misery, because he loves them and pities them and shows enough grace to them that they will be saved not because of them, but because of him. He is moved to deliver them. And haven't we seen this before? And we will see it again. That Yahweh's great love, his great grace, his unbelievable compassion and pity is shown to Israel in verse 16. Yahweh is impatient over their misery and therefore he will do something about it. Not because they asked him, but because he wants to. And he will do that. We see that God will use Jephthah to deliver Israel from the Ammonites in chapters 11 and 12. And, and uh, we'll be preaching on that in the next few weeks. Then we'll see as we get to chapters 13 through 16 that God will use Samson to deliver Israel from the Philistines. So the Ammonites and the Philistines who have been oppressing Israel, God will deal with them and he will, he will call Jephthah and Samson and he will strengthen them to do the work and to deliver Israel even though they don't deserve it. See, God didn't set out to save Israel because of their cries for help. He didn't, he didn't set out to save Israel because of their confession. He didn't set out to save Israel because of their repentance or seeming repentance. God set out to save Israel because he couldn't stand to see them suffer anymore. It was only and completely a result of his undeserved and inconceivable grace and mercy for Israel. His inconceivable grace and mercy. Actually, even when we look at Jephthah and Samson, as we look at those guys, let's just put it this way. They are every bit as sinful, idolatrous, and foolish as the rest of Israel. So it's not about the judge, and it's not about Israel. It's about God and what he's going to do. We will see more and more on how this is working as Pastor Justin and I continue to go through the book of Judges. So let us bring some application, some conclusion to what we've been talking about. And you know by now that conclusion doesn't mean that we're almost done. I hope we are, but we have seen Israel. We have seen what Israel has done. We have seen how they came to God at a time of desperation where they wanted something from him. And God's response to them, although he does end up delivering them, is a, is a, should be a convicting response. Israel has sought to wield God, to use God. They are not worshiping him. Can we and do we do the same thing? And we need to ask that question because the Bible isn't just here for us to read some good stories. The Bible is here, first of all, to show us Christ and our need for him. It's also to show us how we can respond to him. And so we, we see here a couple of questions that we need to ask ourselves. The first one is, what gods are you trusting in? What gods, what Baals are you trusting in? And am I trusting in? And there's lots of ways we could break this down and I could give you uh, an exhaustive list of maybe gods. And remember what Pastor Justin talked about when he talked about this and he talked about how uh, 
a God is anything that really controls our life and how it makes us happy or if it's taken away, if it makes us depressed. And we can have those different ways to identify our idols. But if it's anything that is getting between us and God and that we find ourselves being preoccupied with, being looking to that to give us something, whatever that might be, and we don't run to God, we don't run to Jesus for him to give us everything we need because he is everything we need. If we're willing to go to other gods and other things to find fill in the blank, then we are committing idolatry in the same way that Israel did. We are trying to find a God that will suit our needs, find a God that will serve us instead of worshiping the God who loves us. So I've heard it broken down using letter P before and what gods might be. Maybe it's the God of pleasure, you know, physical pleasure. Uh, maybe you just, that's what you run to when you need something. You run to the God of pleasure, or, or maybe it's through uh, your fun, your, your sports, your activities, and you just say, this is what I want to find my worth in, this is what I want to find hope in, this is what I want to find strength in, or, or you fill in the blank, or maybe it's power, so maybe it's not a God of pleasure, but a God of power, success, popularity, control over others, possessions, maybe money, security, prominence, those type of things have become a problem where you look to those to find your significance, where you look to those to serve you, to find a way to make you feel good or to make you want them worse and worse and worse. Maybe it's not pleasure, power, or possessions. Maybe it's people, friends, family, yourself where we have made ourselves into a God that we want to serve ourselves constantly and our life is revolved around what I can do to make myself happy, what I can do, and, and I surround myself only with people that make me feel really good and if they don't, I get rid of them and, and I look to my family for my significance or I look to my friends for my significance or I just need my own success, my own power, my own pleasure, my own possessions, whatever it is. What are we running to that is an idol, that is a false God in our lives. I want to read a passage from the book of Psalms this morning, one that just kind of caught me as I was thinking about this. Psalm chapter 16, verses 4 through 5. Psalm 16, verses 4 and 5. And if we are following other gods and trusting in them for anything uh, in, in what we should find in Christ. And by the way, I'm not saying that any of these things in and of themselves are bad. But what I am saying is if they become too important, if they become more important than God, then they are an idol. They are a Baal to us. And so as we think about that, in Psalm 16, this is what the psalmist has to write about worshiping false gods. Chapter 16, verses 4 and 5. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. What David says here in this psalm is very simple. Following other gods will only lead to sorrow. You know, we think pleasure, we think possessions, we think power, we think people, all of those things, we think that those things will give us happiness and joy and peace and hope. And we run to those things, but what the psalmist says, what David says, and what is true throughout Scripture, what we see in Israel, is that following other gods does none of those things. Following other gods only multiplies your sorrow. So again, just as I said of Israel, it's not only disobedient, but it's also stupid. 
And it is because you are bringing yourself sorrow as a result of worshiping other gods. It just doesn't make sense. So verse 5 is the alternate. If you're not going to follow other gods, then what should you do? The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. Yahweh, I'm sorry, Yahweh is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The point is, David understands that Yahweh is all he needs. It's his chosen portion. It's his cup. It's everything he needs. That those false gods will bring sorrow, but the Yahweh will be the portion and cup that he needs. Is Yahweh our portion? Is Yahweh our cup? Nothing good comes from idols. God needs to be everything. Again, we're not asking for God to give us stuff, but we have God himself. Yahweh himself should be our portion. We should be calling out to him in humility. Next question goes along the same idea, but do you run to Jesus only when you have no other option? That's what Israel did. Israel tried all the other gods, seven groups of them. They tried other gods and said, this will make us whatever, prosperous, this will make us safe. But then when, when push came to shove and they had no other option, then they ran to Yahweh. See, Jesus wants us to run to him as our first response, not our last resort. But honestly, why wouldn't we do that? Why, why don't we run to him as our first response instead of our last resort? Matthew 11 is a beautiful passage in which Jesus reminds us of what we need to do in our time of need. Matthew chapter 11. Many of you know these verses, but we can't forget them. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 and 29. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you are seeking rest or hope or peace or any of these things, Jesus says, Come to me. Don't come to me for stuff, just come to me. So do you run to Jesus only when you have no other option? Maybe you're in that place and you have no other option. Well, it's good to run to him. But, even if you're not in the place of having no other options, maybe your life seems to be going pretty well. Come to him. No matter what your life is like, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus for him. To know him. To love him. To know his love. Not to get stuff, but to love him, to worship him. And my final thing that I want to ask us this is, have, have you, have I, realized how desperate we are for God's grace? Have we really realized that? I don't think we have. I know I haven't. I live a life that is marked by self-sufficiency. It's a life that is marked of thinking that somehow God owes me or that he, I deserve him to do something in my life. There's times in my life where I just think he's going to give me stuff and I end up pursuing him for that reason and I forget how desperate I need to be, how desperate we all are for God's grace. Remember what Pastor Justin said when he talked about grace. He defined it this way. God's power exercised for the good of those who deserve only bad. I deserve only bad. You deserve only bad. We all deserve only bad. But yet, God's power exercises good for us. And it comes through grace. Ultimate grace. God gives grace to Israel that they absolutely did not deserve in any way, shape, or form. 
They continued to walk away from him. They continued to go to other gods. They even treated him just like any other god and asked only for stuff from him. And yet, he gives such unbelievable and inconceivable grace to Israel and still gives them deliverance over their enemies. But the ultimate grace that is found in this life is not in victory over enemies. The ultimate grace that is found is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Jesus came, that this eternal Son of God came to this world, we talked about this in ABF, came to this world to live a perfect life, to die on the cross, to take the punishment for our sin, and then to rise again and show his power that would raise him up forever. And that is the gospel, that Jesus has done that. That we have Jesus who came to us to give us grace when we didn't deserve an ounce of it. It's not because of how good we were or how much we wanted him. It's because Jesus loved us. God loved the world that he sent Jesus that if we will believe in him. And that's the point. The grace that has been given to us, it is time for us just to humble ourselves before God, fall before him, worship, and know and experience the grace of God and not try to think that we can do this on our own. Not try to think that we are, are, we can be our own God or that anything else can give us what we want. Because even if we think it does, it never will. It will never satisfy. The only satisfaction that any of us will ever have is that of grace that God has given. Because we don't deserve it and yet he is doing infinitely good things to us who deserve nothing but bad. One final verse I want to read from Romans. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. I just want us to listen to these words and actually think about them and realize that these are true of us. This is true of you, this is true of me. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. That's me and you. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we have been reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. In Romans 5 we're told we didn't deserve the grace of Christ. His death and his resurrection on our behalf it was completely undeserved. How do we respond to that? We respond by believing in the grace that has been given to us by running away from ourselves and, from, and, re- and repenting from living for ourselves and instead run to Jesus for everything. That is the truth. That is salvation to be found in Jesus who died for us and rose again. And we come to believe in him and then we are reconciled to God. The enemy, the ungodly, the sinner, all of those things is what we were once. But now we are with God. We are his friends. We are his heirs. We are his sons. All of those things are true because of his great grace. And that's what we reflect upon even in a moment as we go to communion, we will reflect upon the grace that God has given through the death of Jesus Christ. This isn't just a tradition. This isn't just juice and a cracker. This isn't even just about 
the physical act that, that Jesus took. It's about his grace that we don't deserve at all, and yet he gave to us so freely. Let us pray, and then we'll take communion together. Lord, thank you again for this morning, and thank you for the reminder from the book of Judges that indeed, God, you are a God who deserves to be worshipped. You are the God who deserves to be worshipped over all else. Not for what you can do for us, but because of who you are. God, I pray that that would be our heart's cry. I pray that as we take communion this morning, that you would guide our time, that you would allow us to remember and to experience and to be thankful for and to really believe and trust in your grace that you've showered upon us. And so this morning, I pray for that. I pray you'd remind us of how good and great and merciful and... (laughs) gracious you truly are that we wouldn't take any credit that god we wouldn't run to you this morning for what you can give but we would just bow before you in experiencing and knowing your grace in our lives we pray all this in jesus name amen